Hello, everybody. I love coming in here on Thursday evenings and watch you all love each other and visit with each other. It's so fun to see the fellowship going on. I have a couple of announcements before we pray and get started. Um, If you saw the slide that was up earlier with the dates, um, disregard that because that was probably the Wednesday calendar. Um, So next week is our last week of the semester. So we will be having a little special celebration next week. And you all will come in here first, just like we always do. But you will sit at a table with your small group. And on your table will be dinner for everyone. It will be kind of a light dinner, but it'll be something that uh, we can all just break bread together and enjoy that fellowship as we have our teaching time. So um, the tables will have numbers on them, and you'll sit at the table with your group number on it. So this slide is incorrect. Um, There's nothing December the 2nd, so we won't be coming back December 2nd. Ignore that part. But January 9th, recharge. That is correct. Woohoo! It's a great night. That's a Saturday night for all Watermark women and their friends, their female friends. And so plan on that. NICA will be speaking that night. We'll have extended worship with Callie, and it's going to be awesome. And then that January 21st date is correct. We will start back up on Thursday, January 21st. So we'll have about um, six weeks off, I think. And so I encourage all of you to get together and stay in touch over the long break. But that'll be great. And then uh, we will take a spring break. We haven't typically on Thursday night taken a spring break, but we will this year. And it's going to be on March 10th. And then we finish up Bible study on March 31st. So those are the dates for the spring. Mark those down, and we will look forward to it. But next week, come ready to have a little pre-Thanksgiving celebration. So, um, oh yeah, and you don't need to re-register. Some people have asked if you have to re-register for the spring semester. And if you are here, you've already registered, and we're just going to go on and continue on like we have been. So... We have a real treat to hear from my friend, Anne. So if you would, pray with me for her before we start. Heavenly Father, you are faithful. Such a joy to learn more about you from your word. Tonight, we think about the fact that you, in the midst of our turmoil and our own personal deserts, you turn the bitter into sweet You are our Jehovah Rapha. You are the great healer. And Lord, we can trust you. We thank you that you are faithful and you are good always. And you are our great provider. You provide all we need. Even when it doesn't maybe feel like it's what we need, Lord, we can trust you. I pray tonight, as Anne teaches us, that you would speak very clearly through her. Help all of us to have ears to hear the truth that you want to teach us tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your holy word that is active and alive and teaches us and gives us everything we need for life and godliness. It's a privilege 
to be in relationship with you and to be able to study your word along with all the women in this room. And I pray for the small groups too, Lord, that the discussion would be rich and helpful and that we would all be changed because of our exposure to your truth tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is so great to see all of you here tonight. I'll wake you up. Um, I know it's kind of hard to believe, like, next week is the last week of 2015 for us. And so just thought about the story. And, like, we're in the middle of this dramatic story. And we're going to leave this semester in the very middle of this dramatic story. So I hope you will read ahead over the break. And it'll make you want to come back to see what happens next. So last week we left these people, um, they were singing a song of praise to God because he had finished off these Egyptians kind of once and for all. So just imagine what that would have been like for them. I love to try to put myself in the story and just think, what would that have felt like? I mean, they had to be just like, woohoo, like freedom, freedom, like the slavery, those Egyptians, like those are in the rear view mirror now. So they were like promised land, here we come. Made me think about a time that we were heading out of Dallas. We were going to drive to Colorado to a place we love to go. So Neil and Stephanie and I, we packed up the Suburban with everything. And so we took off heading to Colorado. So we go up Central Expressway and go over the High Five, kind of take 635 West. And we had not even gotten to Hillcrest. We were sitting there in the car going like, you just know what it's like to... Just go, I'm getting out of Dallas. Just that freedom. So we were heading uh, west on 635. Like I said, we hadn't even gotten to Hillcrest. We were probably right around here somewhere. And we hear this loud noise. And we turned around. And the entire back window had just blown out of the Suburban. To this day, I don't even know how that happened. But so we we turned around, kind of just like, Drove back home. So, you know, my genius idea. So I took some bags like you get from the cleaners and I taped them together. And then we took duct tape and we taped that plastic all around where that window should be. And we headed out again to Colorado. So this time we're more like, kind of like, <laughs> freedom. And, and Stephanie is like slinking down in the seat because she's so afraid she might see somebody she knows. It was really embarrassing. But have you ever had that feeling like, finally, everything's going to be okay? Like, I got engaged. I got in grad school. I'm going to have a baby. I got that job I always wanted. And then after a while, we're like, oh, this was a lot harder than I expected disappointment sets in. Bitterness sets in. But we look at these people that God loves, and he's continuing to teach them what he's like. This trip to the promised land, Keller says, it's not transportation, it's education. It's freedom 101. So remember, like we talked about last week, these people had been in slavery. They had been immersed in the Egyptian culture their whole life. Yeah, they knew what it was like to be devalued and abused and kept in bondage. 
but they had no idea what it was like to be led by somebody they could trust. They never knew what it was like to be around someone who loved them, to be provided for. They didn't know how to trust. Is that you? So, okay, think back. How is it that they are in this desert in the first place? Have they done something wrong? Mean trick by Siri? Like, you look at this map. You know Siri hates me, and I don't really like her, too. So how many times has Siri led you to somewhere that didn't exist? Or when I, when I ask Siri to call somebody, she just calls whoever she wants. So one day I did tell Siri exactly what I thought about her, and she goes, you can't talk to me like that. And I said, yes, I can. So when you look at this map, they're going from Goshen to Canaan. So if you were planning the route from Goshen to Canaan on your GPS, you just go right up the top. But that's not the way God led them, is it? Now, this trip to the promised land went a very, very different way. God leads them the long way. And we talked about last week, there were reasons for that. Like, God can use one thing for multiple reasons, and that's what he did here. If they'd gone that upper route, they would have likely encountered some enemies that they just weren't equipped to deal with yet, and God was going to spare them from that. Um, Another reason they came this way, God was trying to bait those Egyptians out to follow them so he could take care of them. And And then the other reason was that God just knew they were not ready to possess the promised land yet. So he led them the long way. Now, when you go the long way, you know that, like, God teaches you what you knew in your head. It it becomes real in your life. Like, depth develops during desert journeys. It, It just does. You know that. Now, I like formulas. I like it to be immediate. I like to go from point A to point B. I don't like to waste. I don't like to do that. And I get frustrated when I have to go the long way. I want to know if I do this, then this happens. But it's just not how it works. Like that shorter route would have been quicker, but God had other things he wanted to do along the way. There were situations they just weren't ready for yet. So keep in mind through this whole thing, this desert journey, it's not transportation, it's education. It's Freedom 101. So this week, we see the first three stops on their journey. We're kind of through the rescue part, and now they're turning their attention to head toward the promised land. First three stops, we see the desert of Shur, with which they named Mara. We see Elam, and we see the desert of Sine. And then there are three lessons that we see from the desert. In the desert, God meets you in your disappointment. God can provide springs in the desert. And in the desert, God reveals your heart so he can change it. So the first thing we see when we read this passage, they travel for three days into the desert of Shur. You see where that is down there. And um, they know they need water. Like, imagine being on this journey in this desert that you weren't familiar with at all. And we know a person can only go four days without water. We know that. They probably knew that, too. So, like, we need water. Our children need water. Like, this is a legit need. 
And so after three days, they find water. Like, can you imagine just the relief of that, seeing that water ahead? And then it turns out that the water is bitter. It's not drinkable. That would be a crushing disappointment because this is a legit need. This water was bitter, so they grumble. Their attitude becomes as bitter as the water, doesn't it? Okay, they're not just griping like I gripe. Like, I gripe about all kinds of little things all day long. Um, I'm consistently griping about my garage door opener that just doesn't work right all the time. And sometimes when I come here and I can't find a parking place easily, I complain. I don't know if you had that happen tonight. Or if I drive through somewhere and I order iced tea and they give me sweet tea, uh, don't get me started. I complain all the time. So they grumble against Moses. And did you notice that Moses pointed out, no, you're really grumbling against God. What does Moses do? He cries out to God. So that piece of wood that God told Moses to put in the water, like that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? And, And it was kind of weird. I think that's the point, that God was saying, I'm going to answer you and I'm going to provide, but I'm going to do it my way. So the point to us is, instead of complaining, pray, ask him. Like, this is not hard to understand. If you read this passage, you, that's what you got out of it. So you're not sitting there going, well, that does not make sense. Like, it does. But sometimes it's, it's hard to know. It's not hard to know what to do, but it's hard to do what we know. And did you notice here, like, God doesn't keep them from all hard things. Freedom doesn't keep us from hard things. Yeah, God could have pre-sweetened the water, couldn't he? He could have spared them from all that. But instead, he's like, no, no, I'm going to pro- provide for you. I'm going to meet you in your difficulty. He's teaching them, you can trust me in the desert when the water is bitter. I'll meet you in your disappointment. What do you do with your needs, with your disappointment? What's God trying to teach you in this? He's like, bring it to me. Ask me. Tell me me. I'm not like those slave masters that don't care about you and are just using you. No, I delight in giving you good things. I'm your perfect dad. Matthew 7, 7, Jesus is talking and he says, ask and it'll be given you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How do you need to change your view of God? From slave master to perfect dad. Where are you disappointed? Where are you bitter? Bring it to him. So after leaving Mara, it says they go one day's journey further to Elam. Now, I'm guessing Elam means Palm Springs. Like, I'm sure they're like, yeah, like this is more like it. 
So again, God shows his provision. It's like, I can provide springs in the desert, abundance in the desert, relief in the desert. So then they leave Elam, and God takes them into the desert of Sine, and they start complaining again. Like, wait, wait, they're grumbling again after God just showed them, provided for them in Marah? Like, that's not exactly what I would do. You can get people out of slavery quickly, but you can't get slavery out of people quickly. They had learned not to trust the person giving them directions. Maybe there's been somebody in your life that you should have been able to trust, and then you found out you couldn't. Maybe it was your dad or your mom or a teacher or somebody in a church, and you learned not to trust. This Freedom 101, like this is a process for them and for us too. You know, Scripture says that we were enslaved. We were slaves to sin, to sinfulness. And when you think of slavery, that means you can't get out. You can't leave. And so that was us. We were enslaved. We were slaves to sin, and there was nothing, nothing that we could do about it. And then Jesus came. Jesus was our rescuer. Didn't depend on anything. Doesn't depend on anything we do or not do. Jesus came to rescue us from that slavery. And he did it on the cross. That's the gospel. And so when you trust Jesus, you are freed from the penalty of sin. Like, immediately. You go from being a slave to not being a slave anymore. To sin. But after that, have you noticed that a lot of times we still live like we're slaves. We still act like it. And so God wants to free us from the power of sin over us. And that is a process, a lifelong process. Can you relate to the Israelites in this process where they were? We're like, okay, I know, I know. Why is it so hard, though? God's done a lot for me. I know that. So why can't I just trust him? Like, why do I keep doing the same thing over and over? I say, like, I I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to say that anymore. I don't want to think that anymore. Or sometimes I do want to do all those things. But it's been a habit for such a long time. Do you see how here God is not just trying to change their habits? He's going deeper than that. He's trying to change their hearts. Because changed hearts change habits. I had a cute young friend that had moved away to North Carolina. And so her family lived in Dallas. I ran into her at Preston Center one day. She was visiting her mom. So we talked and caught up a little bit. But the whole time we were talking, I'm just sitting there thinking, she's not that cute. Like she's kind of put on weight. She just wasn't cute like I remembered her. And so I have a dark and sinful heart, you can see. Um, so I get home and I told Neil, I was like, oh, hey, I ran into her. And he was like, how's she doing? And the, what's the first thing I wanted to say? She's not, she wasn't that cute. And so it was like God put his hand over my mouth and he was like, really? Like you would say that? you love her and I love her. Like, why would you say that? And so I didn't say it. 
And I was like, wow, God, you're starting to change me. I didn't say it. But then later I thought, no, God, you really want to change my heart. And the evidence of my heart changing is when I don't want to say it anymore. So they grumble. It's contagious. It says the whole community was grumbling. We know what that's like. So they're like, oh, if only we were back in Egypt where we just ate what we want all the time. It's like, remember the good old days back in Egypt. And, and I'm not sure whether they were saying this for dramatic effect or if they really didn't remember what it was like. Like sometimes people don't really remember what childbirth was like. But our memories are faulty. We can't always trust them. You may have um, seen something as an adult that you remembered as a child, and you're like, oh, it looks different. You know, maybe you think, oh, my grandparents' house when I was a child, it was, it was so big. And then you see it as an adult, you're like, this thing is tiny. So our memories cannot always be trusted. Now, we like to know how things are going to go before we take the first step, don't we? Like, that's what we want to know before we, like, step on that dry ground in the Red Sea, or walk into that desert. So sometimes when we're going somewhere that we're not sure what's going to happen, I mean, we get afraid. And it makes us want to turn around and wish we were back in a known cesspool instead of take that step that we can't see. Like you might want to go back into a relationship that was bad, Because you're like, well, I mean, at least I know what that is. Instead of risk, maybe being alone. Or we think we want to go back into some toxic job because we're afraid to risk failure in a new job. Instead of remembering the stuff God had done, they remembered their slavery in Egypt. It's kind of weird. I read this. It said, um, discontentment distorts the past and destroys the presence. So the plagues, the dramatic rescue, the Red Sea, they came out of here rich, remember that? And like, now they're complaining? Did you think of how that must have sounded to God? Like, what is it like when like, you go to a lot of trouble, stick your neck out, maybe get somebody a super thoughtful gift that costs you a lot, and then they kind of complain, like, oh, that's not enough. Like, how does that feel? But, you know, um, every parent knows what that feels like. And a good parent sees that as immaturity, recognizes immaturity there, and sees that as a teachable moment. I thought about that, and like, I do not categorize myself as a good parent then, because I have definitely pulled that gift back and said, I'm going to give this to some other little girl that will appreciate it. Or at Disney World, like, next time, I'm taking somebody else. But how did God respond to their grumbling, their disbelief? Did you notice that? With amazing grace. Like, really, it was amazing. He did not rebuke them, not one word. He said, I'm going to show you that I'm your provider. I'm going to provide for you. You can trust me. I'm not like those slave masters. Now I'm going to take care of you. You don't need to complain. You need to cry out to me. And then he did two 
things. The first one, kind of easy to miss. I've studied this before, but I had never noticed verse 10 before. In uh, Exodus 16, 10, it says, While Aaron was still speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. So he was like, hey, hey, look, remember, I'm right here. Remember, I'm with you, and you can see me. And then he says, I'm going to give you bread and meat. So he uses something natural, the quail, and he uses something unnatural, supernatural, the manna. The quail at night, like it's going to be everywhere, they understood quail, but manna? That was so interesting. You read about the amazing properties of manna to think, okay, what was it like? Was it like kind of cereal everywhere on the ground? Was it like cookies? It was something good, abundant that they could gather. So apparently it had the perfect nutritional value for people. Like it was custom made by the creator just for them. And it says they ate it for 40 years um, and when they stepped into the promised land, it stopped. Interesting. This idea of manna kind of made me think about God's character of holiness. God is holy. We hear that word thrown around all the time, but what does it really mean? Holy means set apart. So there's like everything, and then there's God. Like God is other. He is in a league of his own. He is in a category of his own. And he can create something out of nothing, or he can use something natural. So don't limit him. He's like, remember, I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to do it my way. So he's telling them and us, like, bring me your need. Tell me your need. He said, don't tell me how to answer, though. He wants us to bring our needs specifically to him to pray the need, but not the answer. So let's look at the manna, the message of the manna and the method of the manna. Manna represents the word of God. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where uh, Moses is kind of doing a recap for the Israelites about everything that happened, he said, um, 8.3, He said, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then manna also represents the, like, capital W, the word of God, Jesus. So God's like, I'm going to provide you with bread. I'm going to give you physical bread to show you that I meet a deeper need than that. I'm going to give you bread, and then I'm going to give you real bread. So it reminds us of another time in Scripture where there wasn't any food. In John 6, there were 5,000 people sitting on this hillside, and they were listening to Jesus teach like all day, like a really long day. They sat there and listened. And then toward the end of the day, Everybody's getting tired. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? And then, you know, it's going to happen next. We see God make something that wasn't there to feed all these people. He takes five little loaves of bread and two fish and somehow makes it enough for everybody. Which, that's really cool. But then he also gets the opportunity to come back and explain to them 
what he was doing. Yes, he was giving them a meal, but this was not just about God can give you a free meal. It meant more than that. So I'm going to read a little bit from John 6 about how God explained that to them. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So how do the people respond that just heard that? In uh, verse 60, it says, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? So the word hard here not only means hard to understand, but it means offensive. They were offended by that idea. Manna, the bread from heaven, which sustained them through the desert. But it was pointing to the real manna that Jesus explained. His word, him, the manna that you can eat and you won't die. How does that help us? Keller says we have to turn truth into bread. To take it in, into your core, to chew it, digest it, internalize it. And then look to it, let it nourish you, let it strengthen you, let it fuel you. In a desert experience, when all your sources of strength have dried up and your resources and your efforts don't help, God forces us to turn to him. You'll never know God is all you need until God is all you have. It is gracious and loving of God when he shows us you need him. Think about this. There shouldn't be food in the desert. But with God, there is. Have you ever experienced that? Like in the very worst of circumstances, to experience this sweetness and this nourishment and this hidden strength that you didn't even know about. Let's look at the method of the manna. Okay, first thing he told them to do, it was to gather it. Like they had to get out and gather it. God provided, but they had to get out there and gather it. He provides, we participate. And it was a daily reminder because we need daily reminders. We all know that. I hope you're using this study in a way that is a daily reminder. And then he said, on the sixth day, you gather twice as much, and then you rest on the seventh day. I know you looked at that in your questions this week. He's showing them that rest is part of his plan for them and for us. Don't think, if I rest, everything's going to fall apart. And I'm I'm talking to myself because I say that all the time. I struggle with this. But God says here, I provide enough so you can rest. Then the manna came with these instructions. Um, It's provision and it's a test. In 16.4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, 
I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they'll follow my instructions. So provision and a test. Now, we all know what a test is. We've all taken the SAT. You might have taken the LSAT, the GRE. You've taken all these tests. Some of y'all here go to SMU. Some of y'all are in grad school. We know what a test is. But some of these people failed the test, didn't they? How did God respond when they failed the test? Do you see here? It's not like school. When we think of tests, we think it's for the purpose of seeing, did you make the cut or didn't you? And so God's testing of them is not like that. He's testing them more like a father will let his child go into an experience to teach him. He wants them to know how to handle hard situations and learn how to follow instructions so it would go well with them. Not like the SAT whether, where he's trying to, something's trying to weed you out. Now, this is a test from a perfect dad. So your troubles won't destroy you. He's trying to reveal to them what's in their hearts. Like trying to reveal it to them because God already knew what's in their hearts. I want to throw this in because we're talking about God revealing their hearts. And when I thought through this, like, it's kind of changed my thinking on some things. Okay, we're always asking God, like, show me your will. Please show me what to do. Please show me what to do. We're like, God, if you would just make it clear. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But we're like, okay, God, if you just make it clear, I- I'll do whatever it is. Like, please, God, write it in the sky. Like, I've said that. But look here, like, we, we look at that and we go, well, yeah, like, they have this pillar of cloud and this manna. Like, if I saw that stuff, it would be so much easier. Like, God's being very clear here. You know, God, I, I know you want people to believe you. You want people to acknowledge you. So why aren't you just more clear? Like, why don't you, in the middle of the Super Bowl, like, make yourself known in some dramatic way where everybody knows it's you, like, Why don't you do that? Why don't you do more miraculous things today? And we long for that. But in Exodus, we see that very world that we think we want. Like God steps into human history daily. He is fair. He is very clear. He is visible so everybody can see him. So these Israel arts aren't sitting around going, hmm, I wonder if God exists. Like They know it's clear. So what do we learn from Exodus? We say we'd obey God if he were more clear, but would we? We wouldn't. Like they had just seen God part the Red Sea. And what did they do three days later? They complain. They doubt. Then God gives them these instructions about this crazy manna that he is raining down from heaven. That is, that's pretty dramatic. So do they follow his instructions? Nope. They go out and they keep it overnight and let it rot. And then they go gather it, go out together on the seventh day. Like all those things. They did the things God said not to. So we learn that dramatic miracles are not the game changers that we want them to be. Did God who showed himself dramatically to people every day increase the likelihood that they would obey? No. God is setting them up to show 
that they weren't capable of obeying, that we need something else. We need help. So here's what we have. Instead of longing for the good old days back on that desert journey, he's given us something better. I have the completed word of God in my hand, and I have the spirit of God in my heart. So I want to end with this. In the desert, things are taken away, and in the desert, God provides I want to read you a little bit more from Deuteronomy 8 where they're about to step into the promised land and Moses goes back to kind of recap this whole journey. Here's what he says. He says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Observe the commands of the Lord, walking in his ways. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs, valleys, hills, wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. When you've eaten and are satisfied, Praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so in the end, it might go well with you. He's like, remember, remember, I provide for you. We need to know that everywhere, in plenty and in poverty. He's saying, remember how I provided for you in the past. This passage shows what happens when we don't. When we don't remember, we complain We're insecure, we're discontent, and we're afraid to act on what God says. So they got into this desert, and they're like, we're going to die. And God says, no, you're not. You're not going to die. You're going to live because of me. And we get in our deserts, and we go, we're going to die. And God says, no, you're not. You're going to live even when you die because of me, because of Jesus. In this world, we're going to have deserts. If you haven't been in one yet, you will be in a desert. But God orchestrates the size of the desert, the timing, what it looks like, what the weather's going to be like for his purpose. He can make you something glorious in the desert. He led them into the desert to show them that he was in the desert. What desert are you in right now? Look for him there. So he's teaching them how to live like freed people. So when I thought about, you know, now they're, they're free. So they're not in slavery in Egypt anymore. I'm like, okay, when I think free, what do I think? I th- when I think free, I think I can do anything I want to, and nobody's going to tell me what to do. 
Like when you were a kid and your parents made you go to bed and you're like, someday I'm going to be free and I'm going to go to bed whenever I want. Nobody's going to tell me when to go to bed. Like that's kind of what I think of free. So when the, these Israelites were released, it's not like God said, okay, just go wherever you want, do whatever you want. No, they went from one authority to another authority. So I think the word freed might be a better word than free. You might have heard me use the word freed tonight instead of free. Because freed, when you hear that, it implies that once you were not free, and I never want to forget that. Free people can be grumblers and can be entitled, can be self-obsessed. But freed people, they're grateful. God took them into the desert of Shur at Marah. He said, I'm going to teach you how to trust me here where the water is bitter and you're disappointed. And then he took him over to Elam and he said, now I want to teach you to trust me here where there's abundance in the desert. Well, then I'm going to take you over here in the desert of Sinai and I want to teach you how to trust me here where there's no food. Like when I thought through that, I'm like, that's a picture of my life. Like God takes me over here. He's like, I'm going to teach you to trust me here. I'm going to teach you to trust me with your career, with school. And then I'm going to take you over here and I'm going to teach you to trust me here. I'm going to teach you to trust me with your family. Well, after that, I'm going to take you over here and I'm going to say, okay, now I want you to trust me here with your health. And all those places. And when we look back, when we're over here and we remember those other places God taught us to trust him, that helps when we're in this desert. It makes it a little bit easier to remember what he has done. When you remember, when you recount, when you retell. So often, we talked about this in our leaders meeting tonight, like God does something amazing. You're like, I'm never going to forget this. And then three months later, you don't even think about it anymore. How can you be intentional about remembering the places God's taught you to trust him? Like there are some events in my life where sometimes I just go back in my head and just go through them again because I don't want to forget. I don't want to forget how I felt. If you tell somebody else, it helps you remember. What desert are you in? Think back to other deserts and how God has proved himself faithful there. You know, God even told Moses, it said, to take some of that manna and put it in a jar, and it was going to be kept for generations, because that was a big enough deal he wanted them to remember. And that was kind of a visible reminder of how God had provided and how he was trustworthy. So we see this week the start of this journey that he's taking them the long way. He wants them to remember what he's done along the way. My husband has an inherited kidney disease. And so his um, dad had it, his grandmother had it, his great-grandmother had it, and they all died pretty young. And so Neil was 27 when he was diagnosed with this, this disease. And so they always said, well... Someday you're going to need a kidney transplant, but, I mean, probably when you're like some really old guy or something, and so that was fine. And then it kind of happened 
decades earlier than we thought it might. And I will never forget when we found all that out and what this doctor said. He said, Neil, I cannot emphasize strongly enough how important it is that you have a living donor. Well, Neil has a sister. She has a great sister. And so we had just always thought if that ever happened that Neil's sister would donate a kidney. And so as we kind of got into this a little bit more, we found out that she and Neil don't have the same blood type. And so she was not going to be able to donate her kidney to Neil. I will never forget the crushing disappointment that I felt when I found that out. Because, you see, I'd been, I'd been trusting God, but I'd been trusting him on this journey where I thought I could see where this was going. And now I was going to have to trust him where I couldn't see. So as we went a little farther along into this, two of our good friends who were the same blood type came and, and said, we'll give a kidney, to, we'll give Neil a kidney. Like that was some of the most humbling things of my entire life, that somebody would do that, two people would do that. They didn't even make that big of a deal about it. It was kind of like, well, yeah, that's what a Christian would do for another. And so we kept going in this process and um, finally, we had determined that one of them was the better candidate than the other. And so we were meeting the surgeon for the first time. So we go to this meeting. It's Neil and me and our friend. So we're going to talk about what the surgery would be like. And so the assistant in the, in the office, she goes, well, Neil, if things don't work out for your friend to give the kidney and you have to go on this, the regular cadaver list, she was like, oh, the, the A list is pretty short right now. And Neil's like, A list? What? what have I done to get on the A-list? <clears throat> and they're like, no. Um, this, is, this is the uh, list for people with blood type A. <clears throat> and we were like, oh, no, no, Neil's blood type is O. It's not A. And they're like, no, it's A. We're like, no, 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 it's O. Like, his mom always said it was O. And our friend sitting here, his blood type is O. It turned out that we're wrong and they were right. But sitting in that meeting and getting that news, I just said, my blood type is A. And so I was able to give Neil my kidney. It was one of the biggest privileges of my life to be able to do that. But I look back on that, and I'm like, well, God, why didn't we just know that in the first place? Like, that would have been so easy. We would just plan this out, and it would just have been a done deal. But he took us the long way. And imagine what we would have missed if he hadn't. Some of y'all are going through unbelievably hard desert times right now. Our sweet Deb, instead of being with us tonight, is sitting in a hospital room because she was diagnosed with leukemia this week. Some of you in this room have been through unbelievably hard desert times. But I get to watch you every week using those hard times to encourage other women, to relate to other women, to offer other women water and food in their desert. When you do that, it redeems your own desert just a little bit. Way to go, y'all. 
press on. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you are our provider, you are wise, and Lord, may we trust you as you lead us into deserts to know that you lead us there to show us that you are there in the desert with us. I pray for every one of us in this room tonight, Lord, we all have stories of how you have taught us that you are trustworthy and you provide even in the desert. And I pray that as we go through the rest of the night, Lord, you will bring those things to mind, that we will recall and remember the places we have seen you before, Lord, and that that will encourage us in the place that we are now, that we, we will use our stories that we can encourage each other, Lord. Thank you for this place where we can be open about where we are and where we've been, Lord. Would you use it to your glory? We pray all that in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.